All right, well, if you have your Bible, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 22 specifically. Although I think I'm going to back up a little bit and read starting verse 9. So Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Our studies on verses 16 through 22, but I'm going to begin reading in verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been. God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. The man has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Well, how much do you think about death? Do you think about death? Pretty regularly. I feel like the older you get, the more you start to think about death. Well, Julian Barnes is afraid to die. Mr. Barnes is an English author. Uh, He formerly had called himself an atheist. Then he claimed to be an agnostic. In his opinion, there is no good reason to believe that there is a God... And if there is no God, then there is no afterlife, which is a reason for one of his books, which is called Nothing to be Frightened of. But you see, the problem is, is that he really is afraid of something. Namely, he is afraid to die. He suffers from what is called thanatophobia, the fear of death. In fact, Barnes says he thinks about death all the time. Every day, in fact, sometimes at night he is, quote, roared awake 
and pitched from sleep into darkness, panic, and vicious awareness that this is a rented world. End quote. Awake and alone, he finds himself beating his pillow with his fist and wailing, quote, Oh no, oh no, oh no. His dreams are even darker as he imagines himself being buried alive or chased or held hostage or wrongly condemned to the firing squad. He's very inventive in his ways of dying in his uh, imaginations. He calls this the usual stuff. Death is in some sense the sum of all of our fears. The fear of being alone, the fear of being abandoned and condemned. When you lie awake at night, what is your biggest fear? Well, we are, of course, continuing our study in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we come to a section that deals with death. You remember that this book is written from the perspective of Solomon, King Solomon, the son of David. He is Koheleth. He is the preacher of the assembly and the great king, wise king of Israel. Now, in the first two chapters, we were introduced to a catalog of vanities, worthless things, the vapors of this world. And he's taking us on this journey in investigating all of life without reference to God, and he's showing the meaninglessness of life without God in a fallen world, a cursed world. And so he's looking at all of these various aspects of life. He's investigating life under the sun. In chapters 1 and 2, he investigated wisdom and knowledge. He looks at pleasure and possessions, accomplishments, building projects, vineyards, orchards. All of these were found to be vanity. They did not satisfy him. In chapter 3, in our last last lesson, we looked at uh, what is in some ways a bit of an interlude, this poem, uh, these eight verses, which speak about time. And in it, we discover with uh, the preacher that there is a time for everything that happens. Birth and death, planting and harvesting, killing and healing, silence and speaking, love, hate, war, peace. All of these things have a time. There's a time for everything that happens under heaven. God orders and rules the world. And so we see a small glimmer of hope begin to emerge as uh, Kohelet is investigating the world. Now, as, as we've said, this is a journey. Ecclesiastes is a journey. He's taking us through what is a bumpy road and at times very uncomfortable for us. But it forces us to look at our own life. It forces us to look at our own sin and our own fears and to investigate what are we putting our trust in? Are we trying to satisfy ourselves by the things of this world? What is meaning in life? Well, the difficult question of death comes up again here in chapter 3, where the preacher poses a problem and then presents a solution. Maybe a solution that's not very satisfactory at this point, but remember the satisfaction doesn't come really until chapter 12 anyway. So he's been thinking about all of the injustice in the world. 
and longing for God to address this injustice. But thinking about that, thinking about injustice and God's addressing of it, leads to thinking about the final judgment, that great and terrible day, which causes him then to think, of course, about death and what will happen when we die. And so starting in verse 16, Solomon presents a new problem. He has observed this lack of justice in the world. Under the sun, that, that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. So instead of there being justice in the world, instead of right things happening, there is injustice, there is wickedness. This is what he has observed. Now, we've talked about this phrase, under the sun, describes, quote, the futility and meaninglessness of life lived only for self without gratitude or regard for God and his ways. So under the sun clues us in that Solomon is talking about a life without reference to God, without looking to our creator. And so in this world, the world Uh, of the fool who says there is no God, there is not justice to be found, but instead what is found is wickedness. Now, you and I know this is true, don't we? Is this not what we see and observe in the world? Do we not see injustice in the world? Do we not experience injustice? Do Do you turn on the television and say, look at all this wonderful justice going on. No wickedness to be found anywhere. Is that your experience? It's not mine. We, we observe the same thing that Kohelet does, right? Don't we see a perversion of justice? Don't we see wickedness abounding in our world? Well, as we consider the issues of justice and injustice, we should consider definitions, right? What is justice? How would you define justice? Any thoughts? Well, Mike's just getting settled in, so he hasn't had anything to say just yet. Well, just, ju- justice is just things happening, right? Right things. It's the right punishment of evil and the rewarding of good. We see this really in, in Peter. Peter, First Peter chapter 2, uh, when it speaks about the civil magistrate, says this, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it is to the emperor supreme or to the governor as sent by him. And what do they do? This is the exercise of justice. To punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Okay, this is what the civil magistrate is supposed to do. A just government punishes evil and praises those who do good. So justice is when everyone gets what they have earned. Blessing for the righteous, punishment for the wicked. Now, you might be already thinking about this. We don't get what we deserve, do we? When it comes to sin, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Our Savior paid the price of justice for us. 
Well, of course, as we look at the world of Koheleth's day in our own world, the problem is that there is a corruption of true justice. Instead of justice and righteousness, Koheleth observes wickedness and injustice. We see this in our own world. The world is upside down and backwards. Of course, these are all parts of the, uh, the effects of the fall. And these extend into all areas of human relationships. In a fallen world, people suffer from injustice and wickedness at the hands of other human beings. And so it seems like nothing is happening to change this, right? What then makes this sad reality tolerable for us? How can we put up with this? How can we tolerate this? What will happen to the unjust and the wicked? Well, Solomon gives us the answer, starting in verse 17. What he says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. You know, in our, in our own age, we might think, it seems like nothing is happening to the wicked. Sometimes we're like Jeremiah who asks this, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Do you ever feel like Jeremiah sometimes? Doesn't it seem like the ungodly in the world continue to grow in power and strength and authority? And God's people seem to be further and further on the fringe? Corruption and injustice seem to be increasing. But God will judge the wicked one day. And when is this going to happen? When is God going to judge the unjust? In his time. Text back to the poem, right? Verses 1 through 8. There's a time for everything under heaven. God will judge the wicked for their wickedness at just the right time. So this is the positive response to this problem of injustice. You and I can look at the injustice in the world, but we can take comfort in the fact that God will one day stand as judge over them. Of course, we want it now, but we can take comfort and solace in the fact that one day, That will happen. So that's the positive aspect to this problem. But there's another perspective that Koheleth brings to our attention. And that's in verses 18 through 19. Another way of thinking about the problem. He considers it this way. He says in verse 18, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts for all his vanity. What does Solomon mean that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts? What does he mean by this? 
But here's the problem, right? The problem is injustice and wickedness in the world. And so the positive aspect, we can take comfort in the fact that God will one day judge. But we live here and now, and so he looks at something else. And he's saying, well, God also wants them to see something. They may be judged one day, and that day may be sometime in the future, but they might die today, right? Death. All of, all creatures on earth will face this. The statistics are staggering, in fact. One out of every one will die. What is it that's common to both animals and man? Death. Animals die, people die. Man and beast both are going to die one day. And so he says... Perhaps all is vanity after all, right? It's almost like he throws his hands in the air. It's all vanity. We're all just going to die. In terms of mortality, human beings and animals have the same fate. The wicked may get away with their wickedness, but just like the animals around us, they also will one day die. This is the fate of all creatures in this fallen world. Now, we, mustn't we ask also the, uh, this question? Isn't there something unique, though, about people? Because he says, well, you know, the spirit of man, the spirit of animals, we all die, all is vanity. It all seems very negative and depressing. Isn't there, isn't there anything unique about man? Isn't there something that sets humanity apart from the rest of the creatures? Men and women are unique because God made man after his own image. You see, we're image bearers, and so man and beast are different in this respect. But it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, Hebrews 9, 27 reminds us. So though man is unique, he is also like the animals in this respect. Both man and beast die. This is the observation that Solomon has made. And so what advantage does man have over the beast? This is the question that Solomon is posing. All go to one place. All are from the dust and to dust return. Verse 20. So is Kohelethan speaking about how God sees the situation or how man sees it? What's the perspective that he's looking at here? I think one of the clues for us in this section is this term under the sun or this phrase under the sun. Again, indicates that Solomon is observing the operations of man. Remember, when he talked about from under heaven, he's talking about from God's perspective. When he uses the phrase under the sun, he's talking about man's perspective. Man under the sun is wicked to his fellow man. But... At the right time, God will judge the works of man. And further, from a human perspective, there doesn't seem to be a difference between men and animals. Death is, ever, is an ever-present reality of life in, or on earth. Every living thing dies. People die. Animals die. Plants die. Everything dies. Aren't you encouraged this morning? 
The reality of death is brought into the preacher's reflection on injustice. He can't, he can't help but think about this. As he, as he looks at injustice in the world, he can't help but think that, well, death, though, death is going to come. Humans die just like animals. And all the righteous and the wicked end up in the same place. They end up in the ground. This is one hope, I suppose, for the stopping of wickedness, right? Like, at least they're going to die. But this is only part of the answer, right? You see, for the world, the only source or the only solace they have for the Hitlers of the world is that one day they're going to die and that will be the end of their wickedness. But from a Christian worldview, from a Christian perspective, a biblical perspective, we understand that there's also judgment. Again, keep in mind that Solomon is investigating the world from a worldly perspective. He's looking at it from a human perspective. But then he goes a little bit further. Right? He says, in effect, no one really knows what happens after death. Whether the spirits go up or the spirits go down. Look at verses 21 and 22. He says, who knows? Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So whether the spirit goes up, the spirit goes down. Yeah, anybody's guess. Who knows? Animals, people. What, what are we going to make of this? What, what is he doing here? Is he, is he being pessimistic? Is he confused? Health asserts that both animals and people go to the same place. They go to death. But then in verse 21, he raises the possibility that maybe, maybe they do, in fact, have different destinations after death. Looking a bit forward in chapter 12, verse 7, he does acknowledge that the spirit does, does return to God and their body returns to dust. The problem is that on the basis of observation alone, it is impossible to know what happens after death. You and I have not personally seen the spirit of a person going up or down. Have you? I haven't. On observation, we can't see that. How do you know then? If natural revelation isn't enough to show you whether the spirit goes up or down, how do you know that the spirit returns to God? Because God told you. That's why. That's how you know. But without God, you can't know. That's his point. We can only know anything in this regard because God has told us such in his word. He's revealed it to us in special revelation. But remember that Koheleth is investigating life with an autonomist epistemology, which is to say he's looking at life and looking at knowledge without God. Without God's revelation. Without God's revelation, who knows? You can't observe it. You need special revelation. And so as we look at this, is, is the Bible leaving us in despair? There's a sense in which uh, 
Solomon is kind of throwing his hands up in the air. I don't know. He's like, I don't know. What happens after death? I don't know. But we do know. Because God's word tells us. Proverbs 15, 24. The path of life leads upward for the prudent. That he may turn away from Sheol beneath. Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. You see, Solomon is leaving us an attention here. There's a tension that is felt here. Now, I keep relieving the tension for you a little bit, right? But the, the preacher is, is giving us this tension and he's, he's not resolving it here by design. He, he wants us to feel the tension of life under the sun so that we can appreciate all the more how God resolves all of those tensions for us, ultimately in Christ. And the tension is found here between verse 17. God will judge the righteous and the wicked. And then verses 18 and 19, God is testing them that they may see themselves are but beasts. What happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. There's a a tension there. And then this, this question of, well, then what happens after that? He's just kind of leaving us there on on purpose. God will judge on the one hand, and man is no better off than the beasts on the other. This is the tension that we feel in this world. For the world, they are committed, who are, they are committed to an autonomy. They believe that there is no God, and so there is nothing but death. When the unbeliever observes the world, he cannot but feel the weight that there is no hope for them. There is no hope for judgment for the wicked. There is only death. Now you see why the man in the beginning that I mentioned is afraid of death. You see why the unbeliever should fear death. The preacher understands that there is more to this world, but he has not yet, at this point, he has not yet gotten to the place of understanding. And so verses, verse 22, he says, So... I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. It's not very satisfactory, is it? Solomon has no resolution at this point for the tension as he investigates with an autonomous epistemology. The unbeliever who has nothing but death in the future can only look at this life and say, well, I guess I should just enjoy my work as much as I can. In the end, there's nothing more to be done. Since you cannot know what is to come after, you might as well enjoy your time here, right? In some ways, this is the advice of, you know, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. This is the best that the unbeliever can do. 
But how can that even be? Remember, the first problem was justice. How can the worker, for instance, enjoy his work while he's being unjustly dragged into court? Which is corrupt, by the way. Wickedness abounds. Injustice abounds. How can there be joy to be found in your work even? This is life under the sun. By the way, this may become even more real for us in the not-too-distant future as we see in our own country an increase in injustice and corruption. Well, up to this point, Solomon has confessed a few things. First of all, he says, God will judge in his time. Okay, we've seen that. Two, all die, the righteous and the wicked, just like the animals. There's no advantage for the man, man versus beast. All will die. Third, we cannot observe in this world what happens after death. The only way we can know that is through special revelation. And fourth, man is to rejoice in his work because this is his lot in life. This is where he leaves us. And then he asks this rhetorical question at the end of verse 22. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Can you take somebody and show them, you know, like, I guess like Ebenezer Scrooge or something like, and here's your future. Here's what it looks like. Who can do that? Who can even look at what things are going to be like after you're gone? You know what's going to happen after you die? You have any idea? You know, you might even plan out your funeral. Right? Some people do that. Is it going to go exactly the way you planned it out? Maybe it will. Depends on how diligent the people you put in charge of that are. They may have their own ideas, but guess what? You're dead. <laughs> We do not know what will happen to us or the things around us after we are gone. You build a house, you save lots of money, you have a business, whatever it might be. What happens to it after you die? Don't know. It could all be gone. This is Kohelet's observation of life and the problems of life. And he gets into this more in chapter 4, where he reinforces his observation of the difficulties of life. But Solomon is not leaving us here with much encouragement, is he? It's kind of... This is why Ecclesiastes is hard. Because there's some points where it seems kind of depressing. But again, it's forcing us to look at areas of our life that we're uncomfortable with, but we should probably be looking at. What are some take-home points? Well, there is great injustice and wickedness in the world. We can see this by observation. And the world is the way it is because of the curse of sin. Sin has affected every aspect of life, including our relationships to other human beings. Death is the constant reality of life. But life does not end 
at death. We can be comforted that God will, in his time, judge all wickedness. And that God has not left us to ourselves, but has in fact inserted himself into history. He has chosen for himself a people who he has redeemed through the Lord Jesus Christ. A hope that for Solomon was a future hope, but for us a present reality. We can also know that in the future God will judge all of the world. And so when we look at death, we should consider that death is an enemy. It is unnatural. Death was not part of the created order. But we should also understand that death is not the end. For the believer, there is the hope of heaven and being with God eternally. How how are we to know where where the spirit is to go up or the spirit is to go down? That's the question he asked, right? Well, we do have the answer to that. It's revealed to us in in God's word. We cannot see these things in our present world. In our present world, we can't look at natural revelation and be able to know those things. But our hope is rooted in God's word and God's revelation of himself. This is quite the opposite of the way that the world looks at reality. Which Koheleth, in some sense, is aping as he's investigating the world like the world does. She's far, far cuter than... Anything else? I just. I can't compete with that, you know? No, no, you're fine. I was trying to joke around. All right. So here's what we, I think, what we we can take from this autonomous epistemology does not get you very far. Investigating the world, investigating knowledge with yourself as the basis of the knowledge is not going to get you very far. If you don't have God as your reference, if you're not utilizing special revelation, you can't really understand the world. I'm not saying that you can't know lots of things about the world. There's lots of ways in which God has revealed himself and revealed truth through nature. But you can't make a full, you can't have a full sense of the world without God. We may observe some things about the world, but this will only get us so far. There's so much that you're going to miss about reality. Without God, there can be no justice. Not really. Because, I mean, what's the basis of justice without God? My justice might be different from your justice. We live in this world today where people say things like this. Hey man, I'm just living out my truth. How, how, is, how is my truth different from your truth? Well, we, if we all get to be, you know, do what's right in our own eyes, right? You can't have justice that way. There is no justice other than what's just for me. Right? Like, hey, everything you have should just be mine. That's just for me. No, that's not justice. You can't have true justice without God. There is no righteousness without God. There is no freedom without God. There is no relief from oppression without God. 
If we simply observe the world without knowing God, I think ultimately you're driven to nihilism. And all is vanity and all is chasing after the wind. And so then in the end, what do you have? Well, I guess we just work hard, enjoy it while it lasts, and then we leave it to some other fool who comes along after us. It's about the best you can come up with. These are the tensions that Kohelth feels as he observes the world. He wants us to see this too. But the reality is, is that all we do is done for the glory of God. You see, it's God who makes sense of the world for us. Because we're not really autonomous, are we? It's God who is sovereign over all of these things. We are under the rule and kingship of God and of Christ. How much time we got left here? The little clock thingy is missing. We got like 15 minutes. Could probably take a couple questions or if you have comments or thoughts before we close. One out of every one. It's really staggering. You. You're going to die. Okay, when you said everyone, you meant every single individual, not as everyone the entire. One out of every one. Yes. It's a, it's a statistic. One out of one. One out of one. It was, it was supposed to be a little bit tongue-in-cheek. Okay. Uh, I, I interpreted you saying one of every... I was waiting for them, like, well, what about Enoch, yeah. right? Yeah. Right. Like, oh, you're going to be that guy. <laughs> <laughs> There's one of you guys in every crowd. <laughs> I was kind of waiting for that because everybody, you know, like that always happens, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah. That, 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 of course, the idea being like, you know, save uh, Christ's uh, return. You're, you're going to die someday. Was Jesus Yeah. That's right. I mean, technically, is it, I mean, would Enoch be considered not having died? Yeah, Enoch, and then also uh, Elijah, right? Those are the only only two that that we know of, at least. Uh, They were transported in the presence of God, whether that they experienced death the way the rest of us would. I don't really know. How how would... Doesn't seem like that, though. How would uh, some people, as recorded in Scripture, dying twice go into those... Well, you know... Like Lazarus, right? Poor Lazarus. He, he, he died. Up, he made up for you. That's right. That's right. <laughs> then he has to die again. But I suppose, you know, he's already experienced the Lord. Uh, you know, in, uh, well, of course, he had Jesus as well in the earthly sense. But, uh, 
he, he probably was quite happy to die again. There you go. So it all, see, my statistics all work out. <laughs> some people just, it's like the statistic. There was there were some statistics some years ago about um, every, every Corvette ever made has been stolen, right? Well, it's not that every, because the amount of Corvettes stolen equaled the amount that had ever been built. But it just so happens there were some of them that had been stolen multiple times to make up for those that, anyway. <laughs> that That's the best I can do. I have no idea what that, whether that statistic was actually true either, but I was, so, it was some years ago, there was some statistic that like every Corvette ever made had been stolen, it's just that some of them were stolen multiple times, so that made a, made a difference. All right, other thoughts? All right, I'll pray and then I'll hit the, hit the pause button on it. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, your every blessing, which you've poured out to us in Christ. We thank you that even as we've uh, gone on this journey with, um, with Solomon and investigating the world, that we're not left to our own devices. We're not left to think about the world without you. But you have shown us truth. And that we, we can see the emptiness of life under the sun. We thank you that we have the forgiveness of sin and that one day uh, Christ will return and will judge uh, the righteous and the wicked and that uh, all injustice will be made just and all unrighteousness will be made right. We pray, Father, now that as we uh, enter into worship uh, that you would bless our time, uh, that we would grow in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.